Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back. Thank you for all your messages. And I want to acknowledge that many of you did not want to listen to the episode, but you did. Some of you were happy, some less, but give yourselves a pat on the back because you were open-minded enough to listen, to hear. And for anyone who needs clarity, last week was not a debate. Last week, I asked our guest some questions, and some of the questions were disvalidated and broken down. But it wasn't a debate. The idea was to give her a voice, and I know some of you think I should not have given her a voice. But learning and listening and trying to understand what someone else's perspective is is not going to kill anyone, I don't think. So even though I don't agree with everything she said or I didn't have the right responses or rebuttals, I think there was a lot of value in having that conversation started. And this isn't a political show. This show is all about giving voices to people and expanding our minds. Today's episode has been on my mind. I really wanted to do something like this for a few months, but it's coming out the week after last and they are connected. So hopefully this will be a rebuttal for anyone who feels like I did not represent the Israeli side enough. So this episode should speak for itself. The throwback episode is Let's Talk About Israel, even though it's politically incorrect. I did that episode with Hillel Fold before I knew who the audience was, who you guys were. I also have a throwback song for you. I am a musician and I started out writing songs from a very young age and I have lots of songs to lots of different Jewish ideas and topics. And I wrote the song Misha Berach a bunch of years ago for the Chaylim. So I feel like it, it definitely deserves to be plugged into this episode. If you're a man and you're saying, hey, this doesn't relate to me, you probably have a sister, a mother, a grandmother, a daughter, a cousin, an aunt. So do your thing and send that song over to someone and give me a play and help spread the music. Once I'm plugging myself in, let me just tell you, I have over six albums out on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your music. Besides for two songs, they are all in Hebrew, new music, Jewish ancient texts. Check that out or send someone else my way to check them out. This is a Jewish coffee house podcast, which means there are other podcasts on the network. So check them out. The link is in the show notes or the show description. As always, I appreciate hearing from you. I really mean it. So thank you for all your messages. Oh, and one more thing. The title says war. War should be your trigger word or you feel like that may be triggering to you. Oh, and one more thing. The last two questions actually thought of them after our podcast interview. I sent them over to Simcha and he responded. So they were plugged in in case it feels like he sounds a little bit different or I sound a little bit different. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Francis. Today with us, we have our first Israeli soldier alum. Not current. You're on a reserve. We'll find out Hello. from you. And yeah. cousin, beloved cousin of mine, which is an honor for me. This episode is coming after 
the episode that just came out with our Palestinian guest, Salih Abed, last week. So this episode is just going to be in a, viewed or heard in a different light, and I'm excited about it. It was before I knew this would be happening this way. <laughs> Originally, I always wanted to have an Israeli soldier on to talk about combat, and now I'll have you also comment on some of the things I've learned over doing this last episode. Okay, my intro is over. Welcome to the show, Simcha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, both religiously and professionally, and then we'll get into your story. So I was born and raised in Israel. I'm uh, 29 years old. 29, yeah. I grew up in Petah Tikva in Israel. I was brought up in a religious family, went to Yeshiva High School, then uh, to Yeshiva Tanzion, Negush, then I joined the army to the Golani Brigade. I studied at Dope University, Sociology and Communications, and I started working more in like finance, and now I work at a family office, managing all families' uh, assets and investments, portfolios, uh, etc. Very cool, and I'm impressed you could say all those words in English, given that you're doing it in Hebrew. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're the first one in your family, actually, who went into combat. And you were in combat during a war. Tell us a little bit about what it's like for anyone who doesn't know. So I'll, I'll start by saying that it's the first time I'm actually talking about it like in public. I spoke to my friends, to family, but uh, this is the first time I'm uh, publicly talking about it. I think the best story is, I'll, I'll jump right into it, like the hardest story and the craziest story is uh, from the first night we went in. Tell us when this was and where did you go in? This was uh, during uh, 2014, during the Gaza War, also known as uh, Operation uh, Protected Edge. We were the last brigade to go in. Uh, there were the paratroopers and others before us, and we were scheduled to enter Gaza, Gaza on Friday. It was uh, postponed, and then on Matei Shabbat, Saturday night, we entered. And it was uh, it was very challenging. Uh, the battle was really tough. It was really hard to go in. We were uh, surprised by the amount of tunnels that they had there, and they were ready for us, and we were not expecting that sort of infrastructure there. But our mission was to go in, and we just pushed for it. We went in, we were pushing. I personally lost a few friends, people I knew, people I spoke to. An hour before we went in, in the morning, I heard that they were gone. And I think the craziest story, I can't say the craziest, but what shows the most in a war is like the changes that go through person so quickly. I saw my friends from my unit go in, in a different vehicle. And I saw them the night before, then I saw them in the morning. And it was like totally different people. You go in one person and you come out different. With time, I realized that happened to a lot of people. It just changes you. Let's just paint a picture of when you say we go in. Talk to me about the details. So basically, you practice a lot. Like, that's what you do. That's what we do as uh, combat fighters. We practice all the time. 
we do what? You, when you hear noise, you are ready to shoot? Talk to somebody who has no yeah. idea and <laughs> has never had any combat experience or training. I'm happy for you. It's basically, yeah, you need to be aware of your surroundings. Like I can tell you that now when I take, uh, if I take a bus or if I walk in the street, I'm always aware of things. It could be also something that happens in Israel and people are more cautious or whatever, but... So give me an example. What are you aware of? How many Palestinians are on the bus that you're on? Where they're placed? Where do you exit if you have to? Well... Well, I own a gun now. Unfortunately for myself, I wouldn't want that. And I don't want to have that at home. But I feel like it's something that as someone who has been through war or I know how to handle these things, I could handle them. So I feel like I have a responsibility towards uh, the people around me. It's just to be aware. I, I can't even like point the finger. It's just like, yeah, I can go inside a bus. I can go up and like look around me. What do I see? Like, yeah, I, I don't want to say that I'm like judging or looking and like pointing fingers. Obviously, I don't do that. But like, I'm always aware of my things around me. And yeah, it happened. I can for sure say it happened in the army. The things I saw uh, made me like be more aware of what's going on around me. So talk to me about the things you saw. That's also the first time. One of the things that struck me the most was uh, seeing... It's actually ironic that we talk about it now because uh, it happens also uh, during earthquakes. But uh, something that was really tough on me, was really hard for me, was uh, when we, when I saw someone climb out of the ground. Someone that I knew is here to kill me. Later on, that's what we did. We were looking over the tunnels, seeing if someone comes out. But the first time I saw it really like shocked me because I felt betrayed. The ground is the safest place. Like I know that wherever I go, if I'm on the ground, it's all good. Okay, you go, you can take an airplane, you can be scared, you can go on like wherever you go. When you're here, so you're on the ground. And all of a sudden I lost my faith in like the most stable thing. And I remember after the war, we went back to the Philmon. That's where we were based there was nothing there it was very calm but i remember i wasn't even looking like towards the other sides to towards syria i was looking around me like the 20 feet 30 feet that nothing pops out of the ground i was like really nervous i didn't know what to do i'm not supposed to look down i'm supposed to look further further is like the, the enemy but i i felt insecure and when they started coming out of the tunnels you were shooting at them or sending rockets? Are you allowed to talk about it? <laughs> you have to be really careful not to shoot at someone from your side. So everything is very quick, but like you feel like it's forever. Like we started seeing them coming out and we started talking to our commander. The commander talks to the general. Like everything is like, are these our people? Should we should shoot them? Like what's going on? And by our people, are they Israelis or there are people? Palestinians who are considered Arab people also? No, whoever was there was Palestinian. They shouldn't, like, they knew that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be there. Like, the army gave them plenty of messages to be aware of what's going on. No, so it's our people, it's Israeli soldiers, just you have some units together. Sometimes you have special forces that go in from the side and, like, things are moving very quickly and you need to be aware. And obviously... 
we are not aware like the higher ranks know more but like until it gets there and you get the approval so it feels like forever forever but like yeah it was i think it was like 20 seconds until we got the approval to shoot but uh it felt felt like forever and you had earbuds or they were screaming through walkie-talkies no, we had, uh, like, some of us had earbuds. You have also, like, uh, speakers in the vehicle. We we entered by a special armed vehicle, uh, which is, at that time, only Golani had them. And they were very, they are very safe. It's, like, the most advanced tank that the Israeli army has. They just did it without the top, basically, to transfer people from a place to another so it's very safe and i felt safe in it but one of the stories was of my brigade that one of the units went in without it because we needed to bring just as many soldiers as possible and they were they were missiled and we lost a few uh, good friends there. It was very hard. This is hard to listen to, and I'm sure it's hard for you to talk about. You were engaged mm-hmm. at that time, right? Engaged to be married? Yep. Just let's move there for a little bit. What was that like? I'm sure your parents were very nervous, and your Kala was very nervous. How were you able to communicate with them, and what was that like for you? So for security reasons, like information security, we didn't have our phones with us, uh, which uh, made the the communication was very challenging. Basically, Ariel and I didn't see each other for, I think, over a month. And during that time, I knew I was safe. Like I knew when I go in, when I go out, I knew I'm alive, I'm healthy. But for her, it was really tough. She had no idea what's going on. She read the news. She hears that people are getting injured and killed. And she has no idea. She has no way to even check. Like, none of my friends had their phones. How often did you get your phones back? Or for that entire month, you were off the grid? No, it depends when. Like, the week or two before, we were basically without our phones. It wasn't a month. It was like two, three weeks on and off, basically. In that time... Everything can change very quickly, meaning I can be with my phone one day, then the next day I'm without my phone and I go in and that's it. Like, we don't talk. I think uh, because everything changes and there's so much uncertainty, that was very challenging for her. For the first few days, she was just staying in bed, crying, not knowing what to do with herself, couldn't pull herself together. And that's actually a really special story. She started... Oh, you did your research. Now I remember sure. when it was happening. It. She did some sort yeah. of fundraising. She raised, I think, uh, over $10,000, maybe $5,000. I'm not sure. And it was for spa packages for wives and partners or girlfriends. Girlfriends, fiancés. spouses, friends. Yeah. And that really helped her pull through it. Yeah. Yeah. So she got her massage and I didn't get it. <laughs> you got PTSD. Exactly. Yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit. So you you killed people and then you have to live with this reality of I've taken a life or more for my land, for my country, for my army. Talk to me about what are some belief changes or things that you had to deal with. It's uh, something that I carry with me 
every day. Also now when I do the reserve forces, I also, uh, yeah, I have training and I meet my friends and do more than training. It's just really hard, like, to see that from, like, right in the field where the conflict. Because uh, on the one hand, I see people who want to work, people who... Like, some of them are very simple, farmers, whatever, and they just want to live their lives, and we make it hard on them. But on the other hand, many people in Israel live in fear, and they don't know what's going to happen. It's just sad. Every time I go and I meet my friends from the reserve forces and everything, it's fun, it's nice, we're happy to see each other. It's really like there's a really special vibe because like you put all your thoughts and political opinions and everything aside and you're all together and it's just a bunch of people, random people, and it's really nice. But like when you get to the conflict, it's just makes me really sad because I don't see the end and I just see that we don't trust each other and it's really hard to work like that and it's really sad. And everyone has been through so much and there's so much pain and suffer that. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not, not optimistic or whatever, I'm, I'm hopeful, but it's just when you're in the field and down with the people, you feel like really sad. You see it. So some of the things that Sally said on last week's episode was, well, she acknowledged, and, and I'll just say she was moderate because she does believe in the ability of Palestinians and Israelis to coexist together. She's not promoting Israelis get kicked out of Israel. So that's, I get, moderate enough. But she did talk a lot about the occupation and all the violence and police brutality and the army. And, and when she talks about the wars or any attacks, you have sophisticated, powerful Israeli soldiers. And then you have those poor Palestinians with no training or arms. They're so much more disadvantaged. So, and you touched a little bit upon that, how he's just a farmer, just wants to live in peace, and we're going in and destroying. We don't go in and destroy. I don't think I don't see it like that. I I do want to see. I do want to say that as people, we do try to be nice. I can even I can safely say that. Like I have my officer now. He's left wing. He lives in Tel Aviv. He's not religious, atheist, everything. And he's a combat fighter, an officer. He does his work. He, do, he does his job. And like well, many people like him would say, no, I can't be part of this army that does it. It's not like we are waiting to do something bad. We're just trying to make sure that people on our side, the people that we are here to protect, are protected. And yeah, the, the IDF is, is the Israel Defense Force. We're here to defend. We're not here to kill. We're not here to fight. We're not here to make anyone feel less. We're here to protect. Did you see any conflict in what the message is, we're here to protect, versus what was happening on the ground? Or do you feel like they were aligned? You were doing what you... People who are not doing what they're supposed to do and feel like they're here for more... They usually don't last. Most of the people I know, I can say that all the people in my unit are rational people who are here to protect. I know people who in the past were together with me who were a little more 
extreme, but even in those cases, when they come upon the other side, they wouldn't be like, oh, I want to do something. It would be, maybe they would be a little more, like maybe a little tougher, but it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm stronger than you, so I'm not going to let you do it. No, if someone has all the right paperwork or all, or he passed the checkup and he can go. So like, there's no reason to let him, to stop him. I don't believe that we have some sort of brutality in our units. And if there is, so these people are kicked off. They don't stay with us. Do you believe it's possible to coexist with Palestinians and have more trust, less violence? above your, um, what do you call it? Ask your commander. <laughs> it's above your pay grade. <laughs> no, I, I was there, like, but I want to believe, but it's, it's, it's just, I mean, two weeks ago, there was a 13-year-old kid who took his parents, I think, illegal weapon and shot it to Israelis. It's deep in their system, like their teaching system and like the, their schools and everything, like, if you put me on a table with a Palestinian, I can talk to them and it could be great. But like as people, like people have to get to the point of like, okay, let's put everything, everything we've been through behind us. But like people are not there. We're not there. We're scarred. And I mean, I think maybe we can be there, but because it's been going on for so long and it's continuing now, People are becoming more extreme also on, on our side. Yeah. Can we go back to the battlefield? When you say we're changed people, if you had to analyze that a little bit more, what do you mean by that? Like you've seen something. Like you're... I remember there in 2017, the war was in 2014, 2017, I felt my first, I wouldn't say attack, but like something that I couldn't explain. Like at night, I started sweating. I was crying. I was like cold, but crying. And I didn't have fever. I didn't have the flu. It was just, I couldn't explain it. And that was the first time I realized that, yeah, I, I have been through something. And yeah, and if you don't, if you don't feel it, like if you don't, it's, it's a trauma. There's the person before that, like my friends that I saw, it's a terrible story. Like their friend was in the vehicle with them. And he got a shot in the head and he, he, Hashem didn't suffer, but like he was, uh, he was with, with them in the vehicle for, I believe, 12 hours right next to them with his body covered. But like, it's his friends, like he was one of them. And for 12 hours, he was like that. And really that's what, that's how I saw it. Like. They went in from one perspective and came out different people. You can't, you can't explain it. It's just like their eyes are like, yeah, we've been there. We've seen it. There's nothing you can take back. It's, it's really sad because it's good people and it's young people, but there's nothing else to do. Like they have to be there. Someone has to do it. Did you have survivor's guilt? Which is? People who survive and someone in front of them or someone they know didn't survive, sometimes there's this 
process that you feel like it should have been me or why didn't that happen to me and now why I haven't had that it's hard for me to describe it but there is this existence of conflict and potentially depression and trying to find your meaning again in life well in general like person I I have friends who have been who are going through all sorts of things Uh, I have a friend who unfortunately is not with me anymore and uh in the reserve forces, he was a close friend of mine because he he said he just couldn't he, he couldn't hold a gun anymore, like he couldn't touch a weapon anymore, and like he he was going through something. I personally, I mean, I am very positive. It very it helped me a lot also during the war when we entered. All my friends, not all of them, but many of them were deep in their thoughts of like. Yeah, we couldn't, it could be the end. We could not, it's possible we won't come back. And I felt like it's not, it's not the right way to go into the, to the field. I'm not saying I was like happy, but I said, we have to make the best out of it and be positive and be hopeful and believe that it's all going to be okay. I was always positive And I think after that, I became even more maybe because like, this is life. Like you, you need to live your life you need to do the best and doesn't matter doesn't matter if it's him or me we were soldiers we have our mission and this is what we have to do and yeah i mean are you asking like if i think that hashem sent me for a reason for that or not i don't know i don't know what he wants for me but i'm trying my best whether i whether I would know it or not, I would just try my best at life. Do you have a few more stories from the battlefield? Yeah. When we we were about to go in, we were supposed to go in on Friday. So people were very down. That's when people were deep in their thoughts. And uh, I, one of the things I did was starting, I started doing Kabbalah Shabbat. We knew it was around that time. It was, I think, around six-ish, six, seven-ish. And we said, like I said, come on, guys, it's time. It's Friday. That's what we would do. Let's start singing. I was the only one with a sitter, like, right in my... I had a sitter right here. In your chest. Which I kept. In your yeah, pocket. I kept it. I like I kept it up until now. It's not it's in really bad condition, but I still kept it because it was very symbolic for me. And I was the Khazan in in our vehicle. And uh, it was really special. Yeah, that was something that I'll never forget. The thing that I mo- learned the most in the army was the, the idea of the, the unknown. One of the hardest things they teach you, they train you in the army, is the unknown meaning okay you can be able to you can be capable of walking for miles and miles you can can be super strong you can do everything but in a split of a second they can break you Uh, and i really remember like one night in the in the training that we were like walking for hours just walking this is what we do walk and then we walk during the night and in the morning, like the mission is to conquer or whatever. And we were walking for hours 
and like at some point i think i was sleepwalking i was just so tired and then they stop us and they say okay like very quiet uh now we can rest we can sleep for an hour or two it's great everyone's like oh thank god like laying back with like all the equipment and the bags and everything and like falling asleep and then i think like five minutes later ten minutes later it's like come on guys gotta wake up the enemy's right around the corner like we have to get up you just have there, there's nothing to do you like get up and you continue and it was a very valuable lesson i think the most valuable lesson i mean okay fine i can walk for I did 70 kilometers. How much is that in miles? 43 and a half miles. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I walked it. I think it took us 16 hours. We were walking 16 hours straight. It was fun, but that that's whatever. You can, you can do it. You can train for it. But like the mind is something that is so like easy to break. And that's what they train, like, train you. And really I use it up until like now with family, with work, like in the end, everything is unknown. And if you wake up in the morning, like not knowing what, what's going to happen. So if something happens, you deal with it and it's all good. Yeah, I have so many stories. Like he told me I have to uh, prepare and then like everything comes back. Well, in case they wouldn't come back, I needed you to have some prepared. Exactly. Also, it was really special during, uh, during the war to see how everyone comes together uh we had uh people coming from all over the country to barbecue for us people sending us letters from from the u.s or like from wherever like just everyone was there i mean it was super special there was uh when we came out of uh of gaza so we had a few days of like like to breathe out and they took us to this uh little uh town to me and two other guys were staying at uh, this family like this traditional family tradition like religious traditional family and she like she like adopted us like a mother like i didn't know her i had no idea like she just took us like their son her sons and up until now, like till today, I write her sometimes, how's it going? I send her Shana Toba. And it was just just so special to see that we can be together and like, yeah, people have their conflicts and like there's so much politics in Israel. But like, I don't want to say that only wars that happen, but like it's special to see to see that during time of war, like, it's possible that we'll put everything aside and we'll stay to stick together. That's my old army service. Now, I can also tell you that during the reserve forces service now, it's really special to see. I can be in the office one day, working, drinking my espresso, enjoying life. And then the next morning, find myself running in the mud, in the rain, like, all wet and it's just like what the heck am i doing here <laughs> like how is it possible like yesterday i was like sitting in my warm chair and like my warm office and like and it's really astonishing not only that i do it but like you have i mean 
if you see it, the percentage is not so big. I mean, it's not so many people, but like it's 20 to 40 year old people like men who just stop everything and can find themselves in this situation. How often does that happen and for how long? Unfortunately for my wife, it happens more than it should. Happens, um, could be like once or twice a year for, uh, on last November, I was there for two weeks. You would go in every day or you you sleep there? No, no, you, you sleep there, wow. you stay there and yeah, it's just like... Camp army. <laughs> yeah, it's like just a totally different world like yeah I leave my family I live I leave my kids work everything like yeah I tell my boss okay I'm very sorry I'm sorry for you and I'm sorry for me but I have to do it and I just go for two weeks three weeks whatever and your boss still pays you for those two weeks yes <laughs> it's illegal for him to do anything <laughs> to me I'm untouchable after my uh combat service. my service yeah so one thing I want to know is, does the question ever enter your mind, like, why am I doing this or am I ready to give up my life for this country, for the land, for these politicians? Does that ever happen or you don't allow thoughts like that to come across? I want to believe that I do it for a better world, for our kids to be in a safer place, safer country but in the end I see myself as part of the Jewish people in Israel and therefore yeah that's what I'm trained to do meaning I have what it takes to serve so I should do it and I want to do it. Did your parents not want you to go into combat? Yeah, I assume they didn't want me to but like they didn't say anything and they couldn't stop me. Only recently, I uh, I heard some stories of like how how it was for them. How it affected them. Yeah, and like, I mean, now as a parent, I can't imagine. I I can or I I don't want to imagine sending your kid to uh, to the battlefield. What was it like for them? What did you hear? Like not knowing and hearing from the news and like people were talking and like. Yeah, they hear about the Golani Brigade and what's going on. Who was it? And I mean, I remember I was there and like people were saying, heard gossip of like, yeah, this guy or this guy. And like all of a sudden I come out and I see the guy alive. I'm like, yeah. we were speechless like, dude, you're alive. We heard you died. Like, it's crazy. It's really crazy. If I had, uh, if I was dealing with not knowing, so I'm sh I can only imagine how they felt. And it's crazy. But I want to believe that we do it for, for a better future. So you're Israeli, so I'm going to assume you didn't go to therapy after going to Battlefield. <laughs> Am I correct? Nope, I did not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love when my assumptions are correct. In America, there's this concept of veterans coming back from war, not being able to functionally integrate back into society versus in Israel, it's sort of, this is how it is. No therapy, jump right back into regular life. You <laughs> jumped into a wedding and marriage, like, and dancing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I've heard 
psychologists or people talk about it and say how in Israel, it's always a war zone in a way. And everyone's in that zone with you. It's not like you're returning back to some country where the Kardashians is like the epitome of excitement. <laughs> and, and war seems like something completely foreign. Whereas in, in Israel, it's less of a contrast, unfortunately. And everyone, you return back to your regular life, but everyone's in that life with you. Whether it's because everyone serves around you or there are terror attacks happening unfortunately, so often that everyone feels like the threat is imminent. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you just, it's, it's part of living Israel, I guess, that you just, you just have to get up. You have to stand up and like, there's, I mean, you can stop. And there are people who have problems and are trying to deal with them. But like, I think, hey, like you said, we're all in it together. As I mentioned, people were barbecuing. It wasn't only like the Sioni people or whatever. Like we had ultra-Orthodox people who don't necessarily go to the army or do stuff like that coming and barbecuing for us. And we're helping and like it, it was something special. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, we're all in it together. And B, I think, um, yeah, like you have to, you can't, it's not, it's not fair to compare it also because, uh, in Israel, you, you, you do it to survive. Like you want to be here. We believe that we have the right to be here and, uh, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Obviously we're not doing everything perfect and we can always uh, get better, but uh, when it comes to protecting and serving this country, yeah, even if it's hard, you wanna do, you wanna do it, and you wanna make sure that you do it properly. And what happens after? Everything is so crazy here. Like we lived in Cyprus also for two years for medical school. My wife's medical school. When you live there in Cyprus, everything is like so chill relax people are like going to their coffee places on sunday and on monday and like they were chill people asked me how it was it was like amazing it was so chill but like it's not reality like the reality is like everything is moving so fast and like you have to do that and you have to go that and like it's part of the culture of the culture yeah of the thrill so it's fun but uh it's intense yeah i mean in the end, people ask, like, Ariella, as a doctor, she could at some point work abroad. We can move, we can do, we have, we're resident of other countries. Like, in the end, I feel like my life in Israel is very meaningful. And I have a very strong purpose here, like, sense of purpose in Israel. Yeah, and even if it comes with a baggage, I think everyone has some sort of baggage wherever you live, but I wouldn't trade it for something else. Were there women in combat? In terms of women in our unit, we didn't have women as fighters, like as combat fighters, but we did have in the surrounding, like assisting with uh, stuff or administrative uh, things, but no fighters. I will say that 
from my uh, experience, there are some intense moments in the service, during the service, and I've spent hours and hours with, uh, sometimes with one person in some sort of uh, like an area or whatever, and uh, it could get very like intense. We can have like conversations and I don't know, I can say a lot of things, but I just uh, imagine to have a like to be in a situation of a boy and a girl at these places uh i don't know if it's the best thing but i i can't say i have experienced that during the service how do you feel about haredim and about jews who are religious and i know you consider yourself very religious who don't go to the army talk to me about that i think that as a soldier it doesn't matter what I feel about Haredim ser- during the service or not during the service. I, I know that some uh, Haredim do go to the army and have a very meaningful service. And, and, and there are also people who are non-Haredim who don't go to the army, such as uh, left-wing people who don't believe in the army and what uh, the army does, uh, etc. I, I think it's very complex because... Uh, yeah, when I speak to a Haredi who goes to yeshiva and learns and believes that he understands and believes in the importance of uh, learning Torah, so it's one thing, obviously, but I'm not sure as a society we can say that they all Haredim learn Torah and therefore they are, they can, they get off from the army. Like, I, it's a little hard to say that. Uh, I do think we need to find the balance between uh, a society that wants to learn Torah and uh, the general giving and uh, contributing to the, to the to the society. It's it's very hard to see what's going on now. And uh, in the forties, fifties, it started as a group of people learning Torah and pushing for this thing, but now it's very big. And I don't know if we can safely say that everyone is sitting and learning Torah, and that's why they don't go to the army. Uh, I wish it would uh, get better and, like, people wouldn't look at them in, like, such a bad uh, way, but I don't think it should be, like, everyone go to the army. But we have to be more uh, true true to ourselves, and they have to be true to to themselves and do the right thing, which I don't know what it is, but it's not necessarily what they do now. Wow. I have a confession to make. It took me months to find you because I was looking for anyone. I'm like, I'm not going to ask Simcha. I know a soldier who was in combat during war. It was very hard for me to find someone. I did find someone. He didn't work out. And then I was like, okay, I have no choice but to ask you. And I'm happy I did. Just to go for it. Well, I hope you're not disappointed with that. Absolutely not. The stuff. There was there was some block for me to ask my, I'm sorry to say this, my little cousin. I remember you as this little person, this because I was friends with, I played with your older brothers. And maybe there was this reality clash. I it, it makes you think of Israeli soldiers being little kids as opposed to like when asking you, I had to deal with that reality versus them being these adult men who know what they're doing and they're killing people for our land. And here, you're my. Little cousin, you're not so much younger than me. I don't want to belittle you here. You're, you're an adult. 
high earning, or idealistic reserve for the IDF. So thank you so much for your service. I'm, I'm so honored you were open enough and willing to share your experiences with us. I'm happy to embrace you. Thank you for listening until the end. I hope you found this episode valuable. If you'd like to join and participate in the discussion group, you can email me. My email is in the show notes and I'll send you a link to join. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by doing one of or all of the following things. Number one, you can rate and review this podcast on whatever app you are using to stream this episode. And once you're there, make sure you are subscribed or you are following the show to make sure you don't miss a future notification. Number two, you can talk or share this podcast with other people you think may enjoy the show. And number three, you can be a sponsor and you do not need to advertise anything to be a sponsor. I appreciate all the support that comes in, whether it's anonymous or with a purpose to share about other important initiatives and brands. Check out the Jewish Coffee House podcasts on the network, such as Orthodox Conundrum, Let My People Eat, Chokhmat Nashim, and Intimate Judaism. Also, go check out my music and the throwback episode for today. All the links are in the show notes. Have a great week. See you next time.